Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I do like to keep you updated on my reading from time to time, and it's been a while. I've been reading Joe Hill's The Fireman. It's a long read, and just haven't been able to make it all the way to the end yet. However, so far it's been pretty good. The book showed up on last year's Goodreads Best of Horror list, and it's been quite a good read. I also started reading and not knowing that Joe Hill is Stephen King's son. I have caught a few references to his father's work, and that's always a fun find. Maybe I'll talk a bit more about it once I finally find time to finish the book, and I hope that soon. But you came here to hear some stories, not hear my talk about them. So let's get to it. Rick Kennett has had horror and science fiction stories published in several magazines, anthologies, and podcasts, including Doonstief, Pseudopod, and Cast of Wonders, and won two Parsec Awards in 2013. He presently has two novels, two collections, and a novella at Amazon. When not toiling at the day job in the transport industry, he's either wandering in cemeteries or working as the podcast reporter for the Ghosts and Scholars M.R. James newsletter. Let's hear Rick Kennett's The Windows. He didn't wear a cloak or a satanic goatee beard, yet there was something indefinable about him that made me uneasy. Besides, it was midnight, and I'd heard no buzzer announcing someone at the front door intercom three stories below. The electronic music program was in the on-air studio at the moment, but was about to finish, so could hardly be expecting a guest. And I was the next shift. Yet there he stood by the door to the reception area, a black valise hugged to his side. He didn't see me straight away. 
His glance started about, now to the darkened glass door of the business office, now down to the corridor leading to the studios, now to the on-air monitor, finally coming to rest on me, with something of a twitch. He said something I didn't catch due to the monitor speakers sirening with electronic sounds. I reached for the monitor and turned an appropriate knob. Silence fell into the reception area. Sorry? He gave me a look of strained patience. This is the public radio station through LTD? It is. Had he asked a question or stated the obvious? Are you looking for someone? Not unless Kingston Newbury is here. Studio time has been booked for me to dub phonographic recordings onto tape. The recording studio book was lying open beside the monitor. Under today's date was written Beckerman, Midnight, Dubbing, in Kingston Newbury's spiky hand. Beneath it he'd scrawled in Latin, Is es quihoc faciat. Only later did I translate this as, He is the sort of man to do this. Any friend of Kingston Newbury was someone to be wary of. Newbury was a music category supervisor at 3LTD, one of the station's, shall we say, more exotic members of staff. No one second thought I should call him what he was. Downright weird. His category was experimental music, which, among other things, included playing both studio turntables simultaneously to air. What another category would have called an unholy foul-up, Newbury called art. He often read works of Crowley and Dessart to air, and there had been the infamous morning magic show, which included the sacrifice of a cat. Mere sound effects, Newbury explained afterwards, and no one was really sure. Midnight's an odd sort of time to want the recording studio, isn't it? I asked Beckerman, and received such a sneery look that I found myself quickly adding, You could have come in tomorrow and had all day. I prefer to have all night. Which way to the recording studio? Along the corridor to the left, Studio 3, down at the end by the transmitter and log recorder. Without another word, he turned and strode away. A typical Newbury type, I thought, and called out after him. You do know how to work the panel, don't you? With frightful suddenness, he reappeared in the reception area and said, Of course, as if meaning to add, Oaf, but couldn't really be bothered. What he did add was, And I trust there'll be no interruptions. Interruptions? I said in a small voice. For several uncomfortable seconds, he stared at me as if deciding upon some action, and I felt myself becoming afraid. "'Have you ever seen the likes of these?' he said at last. Still staring, he opened his valise. I'd assumed the case contained records, and so it did. But these were records of a type I'd never seen before, like 78s, but larger.' and their labels were completely black, save for some ornate white lettering, Canto, Temera, Ultimus, Invocationem, Mortuus. 
Beckerman snapped the valise shut, turned and left. I gave him a full minute, then hurried down to Studio One, the on-air studio. It was now past midnight, and I was late. The changeover went smoothly enough, and by ten past twelve the electronic music people were heading off into the night. Now the insomnia shift had begun, and I could look forward to three hours of subdued panic. There were records, tapes, and CDs to line up on specific tracks, sponsorship and special announcement cartridges, carts, to be played at specific times, the program log to be filled in, on-air pleadings for listeners to subscribe to the station, time checks, announcements of music about to be played, back announcements of music just played, all the time trying not to waffle, not to let any silences sneak in. And whenever I found myself sitting in an idle moment, a tiny voice in my head insisted I was forgetting something. It was in one of these idle moments, with a long piece of ambient music playing, that I realized I could see what Beckerman was doing. The wall directly in front of me was largely taken up by a plate-glass window. This looked into Studio Two, a long room, used primarily for bands playing live to air, but right now all empty and dark. Its far wall was also a large window, which looked into Studio Three, where Beckerman was working. The effect was like peering into a tunnel or through the wrong end of a telescope. I could see Beckerman, small and slightly distorted, at the far end of the darkness, fiddling with the cassette deck and the left-hand turntable. I watched him, his movements like some pointless, silent movie. Then whatever it was he was struggling with must have come right. He suddenly sat up straight and pushed a button on the operating panel. But what a grim face he had. Then he picked up a pencil and began writing, too absorbed in his work to notice me watching. Twenty minutes and six or seven music tracks went by before I had another chance to spy on Beckerman at his precious recording session. He was sitting behind his panel, his head inclined in a listening attitude, and on his face were signs of worry. For the next few minutes I was busy again, stopping and starting CD players, cross-fading, loading sponsorship carts, keeping the program log up to the moment, lining up records on the right track, trying to think of what to say next. Snatching five seconds from the rush, I glanced through the windows. What was Beckerman doing now? Still listening? Still worrying? It seemed so. Things, I told myself with a wry smile, were coming to a fine state if I found entertainment value in watching a pompous twit having anxiety attacks over what was probably wavering sound levels. Yet I kept watching him whenever I could, and in so doing, invented a game to interrupt the studio routine. Had he moved since I last looked? Had his expression changed? Yes, he had shifted his position. Yes, his expression had altered. Sometimes he was writing hurriedly, and sometimes he was listening again, utterly motionless. And his eyes were wider, his mouth clenched. It looked like the beginnings of fear. I was dining with the dead, the life of the party. 
the extended dance version of Dining with the Dead by the Wild Oscars was playing, which gave me my next chance to peek at Beckerman. He was half in profile, staring down at the turntable. For an instant he raised his head, and in that instant I saw his fear was still there, had in fact grown. I felt sorry for him, I really did, though I could not tell why. Lock tape, lock tape, lock tape. I glared at the red-lit sign flashing on the panel. Damn! By law, every radio station must record everything they broadcast. And right now, the tape on 3LTD's recorder had just run out. Changing it was a fiddly job of juggling spools, threading tape, and pushing buttons you hoped were the right ones. I'd had a short track lined up to balance the long one by the Oscars. Now I had to frantically scramble through my CDs and records to find a track with at least five minutes' duration. Finding one, I got it playing, just as the Oscars finished. Without lining up something to follow, I hurried from the studio. The log recorder was bolted to a rack beneath a transmitter at the end of the corridor down by Studio 3. While I unscrewed capstan hubs and rethreaded tape, I heard somewhere behind the whir of the transmitter's heat exhaust fans vague bits of music. But no ordinary music, this. A discord of jangling, thumping, thrumming, a collision of inharmonious chanting leaking from the door of Studio 3. It frightened me. I don't know why, but it did. Perhaps it was the disconnected rhythms, disturbing and irrational. Perhaps it was the monkish chanting seeming to draw closer as I listened. I hurried to change the spools, anxious to return to Studio One. I started glancing over my shoulder as if expecting something stealthy approach at any moment. Finally, the tape was changed and rolling. As I turned to go, I was startled by Beckerman's face pressed to the little window in the studio door. Though I was only two or three steps away, he didn't appear to have seen me. He was peering down the corridor, trying to get a view of its length. His face was white. I backed away, turned and ran back to Studio One, slamming the door behind me. For the next five minutes, the lining up of tracks became a purely mechanical action, something to keep me busy while I tried not to look through that long darkness into Studio Three. Not trusting my voice, I let track after track air without acknowledgement. Gradually, a peculiar feeling stole over me as if I were being watched. It wasn't Beckerman. He was busy scribbling again, pausing once or twice to make what looked like frantic waving and diving gestures with his left hand. Then if not Beckerman, who? There were windows to the side, fixed and double-glazed for soundproofing. They overlooked the street three stories down, and nobody was watching from there. So I looked to the door, to the little window in it, and glimpsed something quite swirl away from the glass. By now, I could do nothing, mechanically or otherwise. In Studio 3, Beckerman had turned toward the door. I watched his mouth open in a silent cry. Then all was darkness down there. I could only sit and stare, stare and sit long after the last record had wobbled, hissing into his final spiral, 
long after any flashing lights on the telephone had blinked out through lack of answer. Without really wanting to, I left the studio and crept, hugging the wall, back down along the corridor to where the door of Studio 3 hung open. It was dark in there, dark but not silent, a hum as of distant traffic. I was surprised to find that the light still worked. Beckerman was gone, though his valise lay on the bench beside the panel, open and empty. Those big black records with Latin labels were nowhere to be seen. All I found were scraps of paper that had the appearance of having been ripped up in a wild rage. I picked up a few of them and read, If not then, could be more. It stirs dark. Summons knows I am. Risks must. Not an adequate defense. Approaches. The traffic noise, I now realized, was coming through one of the studio's double-glazed windows. It was smashed, leaving only little glass teeth in the frame. And they were red. I went to the window, but it was a long time before I looked out and down. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That was Rick Kennett's The Windows, as read by Martin Rato. Martin is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Our second story comes from Simon Bestwick. 
We heard from Simon Bestwick fairly recently with his story, The Chum, in episode 249. But we've got a new one from him tonight. British writer Simon Bestwick is the author of the story collections A Hazy Shade of Winter, Pictures of the Dark, Let's Drink to the Dead, and The Condemned, the chapbook Angels of the Silences, and the novels Tide of Souls, The Faceless, Hell's Ditch, and most recently Devil's Highway and The Feast of All Souls. His work has been published in Black Static and Great Jones Street, podcast one pseudopod and tales to terrify, of course, and reprinted in Best Horror of the Year. When not writing, he goes for walks, watches movies, and listens to music. Until recently, his hobbies also included avoiding gainful employment, but this ended in failure and he now has a job again. He lives on the Wirral with his long-suffering wife, the author Kate Gardner, and uses far too many semicolons. Let's hear Simon Bestwick's Vequerie Blanket. Three of the mortuary tables were occupied, their inhabitants muffled in sheets of translucent plastic. The others were untenanted, their stainless steel surfaces glistening, freshly cleaned. None of that stopped me from imagining the sight of blood sluicing down their ribbed channels to the drains. I envisioned rats with boiling, bulbous eyes beneath the streets, a clawing, raving pack of them jostling for prime position at the mouth of the drain to receive the baptismal flow of blood. Everything shone, polished and white or metallic. That antiseptic disinfectant stink common to all hospitals hung in the air and brought bad memories back. My mother dying in the cancer ward, the endless stink of antiseptic, sometimes laced with vomit or shit, as illness crushed its victim's self-control, the last and most humiliating betrayal. The autopsied corpses were in what resembled a vast filing cabinet that occupied an entire wall of the mortuary. This one under M for multiple stab wounds, that one under B for burnt to a fucking crisp, the other under H for haven't got a clue. The attendant was young, barely twenty, but already had the callous insouciance common to his profession. The only sound in the mortuary was the champing of his jaws on the wad of gum in his mouth. A wraith of spearmint trailed behind him like an outraged ghost. Partly bravado, but partly simply the hardening of the soul's tender spots that comes with regular proximity to death, like cancer from continuous exposure to radiation. He pulled the drawer open and I looked down. The face was indistinct under the plastic sheeting, it crackled noisily as it was pulled back. His face was paler than it had ever been, of course. When I'd last seen it, it had been weathered and tanned from long seasons of exposure and webbed with firework displays of crimson, ruptured blood vessels in the cheeks. Now the thin scabbed lips were blue, the face the colour of sour cream, except for the light grain of grime that nothing would ever erase. The veins remained, but were blue as his lips now. Bluer. They were like tiny worm casts, fine threads of blue cotton just beneath the skin. The lank brown hair had more grey in it than it had before, 
and the piercing, albeit bloodshot, eyes were closed. But it was still him, the skewed blade of the nose, the sardonic hook to the mouth, as much to do with long habit and personality as with the white scar on the cheek near the mouth corner. It was him. It's him, I said. It's Vecaray. The attendant made a muffled noise, a non-committal grunt. That is, first name or second? Second, I think. With Vecaray, it had always been hard to be sure of anything. I looked down at the pallid dead face and felt an inexplicable sense of loss. There'd never been much love lost between us, not that I knew of, but there'd been respect. Someone like Vecaray demanded it, sometimes tacitly, sometimes overtly, with the aid of the old gutting knife he hid up his sleeve. I'd known all morning that he was dead, of course, he must be, but seeing it confirmed now was still a blow. He had a brother somewhere, I think, I told the boy, down in Hereford. That's all I know, really, but that's not a common name. Finding the next of kin shouldn't be hard. The attendant grunted thanks. How do you know him? Doesn't look like your sort. And how would you know what my sort was, I wondered. I didn't give him the same potted version of events I'd given the receptionist or the pathologist. I hadn't the energy or the inclination. I can't honestly remember if I said anything at all. Afterwards, I called the office from a payphone in reception and called in sick. Then I caught the bus back into Manchester. When I got there, I went to the canal basin at Castlefield, bought a drink in one of the bars there and sat outside. The day was warm, as it should be. How did you know about him? Had anyone at the hospital asked me that? I couldn't recall. And what answer could I give? How could I explain Vecaray's blanket to anyone who hadn't been there? Anyone who hadn't seen? There is another world. It lies in the cracks and gaps, the crevices and interstices of this one. It's all around you in the city. This city. Any city. There's nothing magical about it. Nothing surreal or supernatural. On the contrary, it's the city of those without magic and with too much of reality. It is the city of the dispossessed. All the abandoned places, under railway arches, beneath bridges, inside condemned buildings. In every place where the rest of us don't walk, don't work, have no business, they live. The forgotten, the forlorn. People like... Vecaray. People like Tiger, small and tough, with his hair dyed in blazing streaks. Why, I never knew. People like Toolbox, the Falklands veteran whose face prickled with studs and rings, body piercing that went some way to masking the old battle scars. Like Caris, the dark-haired waif I once loved, who they found curled up still and pale and cold, looking smaller and frailer than ever before one cold winter morning after a colder, too cold winter night. And, once upon a time, people like me. I won't bore you with the details, why I left home at fifteen, what I was running from, where I was running from. I certainly won't say what and where I thought I was running to, because I didn't know. 
might have been because there wasn't anything. I lived like that for three years, on the streets, sleeping rough, begging and hustling all I could to keep going, blowing my mind with cheap cider or drugs for relief. Sex I took where I could get it. If you could save up a twenty, one of the girls who plied her trade in the red light area would provide relief of another kind. Or later on there was Karis. But she died. Murdered. I'm sure the death certificate said hypothermia. File under H. But that's another story. Well, no it isn't, but I'll come to it, okay? I'll tell this one in my own way, in my own time. Karis and Drenigan, they come later. First me and Vecaray and his blanket. Me, when I was eighteen, I got lucky. I found someone who was willing to help me out. Gave me a correspondence address so that I could find a job. Found somewhere for me to stay till I could rent my own place. Pure luck. Now I'm twenty-three. I live just south of Manchester and I'm saving up for my own place. Every day I take the Metrolink into town and walk up into Salford to the office where I work. Things have turned out well for me. Less well for others. Vecaray. Vecaray was a real mystery man. He somehow never seemed to belong, and that was saying something. Most of our little crowd, me, Tooley, Tiger and Karis, were the ones who didn't belong, didn't fit. Misfits, outcasts. In India they have a caste, the untouchables. Nothing to do with Elliot Ness, but the caste that represents the lowest of the low, the unwanted, the dispossessed, that was us. But Vecaray didn't seem to belong even there. It was more than his accent. Oh, he sounded posh enough, but class goes by the board when you've hit bottom, and by the looks of it all, you're there to stay. But despite the ingrained dirt in his skin, the weather-beaten face, it all seemed somehow false. I never could shake the idea that the broken veins and the raw tan were no more than make-up, and something very different lay underneath. I don't know what, and in truth, I didn't much care to know. Looking back, it was in how he walked and moved. He didn't shuffle or bow his head. There was no sense of defeat or defiance or anything, only acceptance, almost happiness, ease. He was distant from almost all of us. Almost all. Karis touched him somehow. I don't know how. Maybe she reminded him of someone he used to know. Or maybe it was just her. Karis, when she had to beg, rarely returned empty-handed. It wasn't about sex. She never sold herself once, although it must have been tempting as easy money. She was just one of those people it was hard to hurt in any way. But some people had. Her stepfather, for one. And later, Drenigan. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. Or am I? Uh, well, I suppose not. Because if I tell you about Karis and Drenigan now, I tell you about Vecaray's blanket. So here goes. It was one Christmas when I was seventeen, and it was bitterly cold. We'd all gathered under a railway arch by the river, the Metrolink thundering overhead every few minutes beneath where the Cornbrook station is now. The old gang, Karis, Tooley, Tiger, and of course, Vecaray, we shied bits and pieces we'd gathered up, 
scraps of wood, wads of old newspaper, into a pile and made a makeshift fire. Tiger had a bottle of cheap whiskey and we passed it round. Life was as good as it got. And then the torch came on. It blazed straight into my face. I yelped and brought my hands up, cringing back as it came towards me. I started to wriggle backwards, but not quick enough. I was kicked twice, groin and ribs. The second one sent me rolling away. Well, well, well. The torch played over the other faces. I saw it through a haze of pain. Karis crawled towards me. One hand touched my legs till the beam flashed into her face. Away from him, said the voice. It was deep and rough. Another torch was flickering, silhouetting the first torch holder. I saw a big bulky figure, six feet four, with a physique to match. I felt Karis's hand clench on my leg. He's hurt, she said. You've hurt him. Don't make me tell you twice, cunt. Karis slid away. In the torchlight I saw hurt and anger stamped on her face. Outside the rail arch I saw blue light flickering over the cinder path. The big man wandered forwards. A thinner weaselly shape crept behind him to the mouth of the arch, picked out in the blue light, keeping his torch on the big man. The big man shone his torch at Tiger, who flinched and squinted, at Tooley, who didn't look up, he didn't want to show the hate in his eyes, flicked it casually over me as I groaned, and over Karis, who tried to look defiant, and finally on Vekeray, who sat very close to the fire, his gaunt old face framed in the cowl of his blanket, his pale eyes, watery from the fire, swivelled slowly up. I suppose I should say a word about the blanket here before I move on. Vekeray carried that blanket wherever he went. I saw him fight two men, both twice his size, like a maniac when they tried to take it from him. I don't know why. It was ordinary-looking enough, though he took good care of it. He must have had it since Christ was a teenager, but he took good care of it. Even the colours hadn't faded. Not that there was much colour in the blanket proper. It was grey, a soft grey of spent wood ash or charcoal. But the edging, the borders, they were red. The richest, most vivid red you ever saw. And it never once left Vekeray's side. It was stuffed, wadded into a pocket of his old army coat, or into the waistband of his string-tied trousers, or like now wrapped around him like a monk's robes, or pulled over him when he slept. Or so we all assumed. I couldn't, I realised, ever recall seeing Vekeray asleep. And now its red edges ringed his face like streaks of blood as he regarded the big man. Ah, Sergeant Drenigan, he said, without a trace of fear or grovelling. Just well-bred politeness, the kind you use even to someone you think is a reptile who ought to have been drowned at birth, perhaps most of all to them. Which is how just about everyone came to regard Sergeant Danny Drenigan within five minutes of meeting him. Vekeray's eyes rolled to the right, to the thin hunched figure in the flickering blue light. Did I mention Vekeray's eyes? They were bloodshot and roomy, but very pale in colour, neither blue nor green nor grey nor anything else that I could definitely say. And Constable Todd as I live and breathe. Vekeray, 
The voice from the spindly shadow was pure South London and trying for a note of pleased surprise that rang as false as a three-pound coin. Vecaray, echoed the one called Drenigan, shining the torch straight into his eyes. Vecaray didn't even blink. He smiled instead. It made him look ancient and cruel. Well, we were all thinking even then of how we'd like to carve up Drenigan and Todd with broken bottles and roast them over our slow fire. It wasn't just what they'd done. It was the whole manner, the way they spoke, as if we were the shit on their shoes. Vecaray, repeated Drenigan. Not dead yet. Vecaray shook his head. Still here, Sergeant, he said. Drenigan moved forward so that the firelight played over his face. It was square, corrugated, and lumpy. Wouldn't have looked out of place on a church roof. The eyes were narrow with cruel cunning, the hair a greasy mix of black and grey. Pity, he murmured. Then he looked over the rest of us. Well, well, Toddy, what do we have here, would you say? Scum, Todd said, bang on cue. Wasters, tramps. Toddy, Toddy, said Drenigan, let's be PC, PC. Homeless people, we say now. Well, I said, Toddy replied, scum. Whatever, Drenigan sighed, and shone his torch round again. What do you think, Toddy, if we searched them, think we'd find a few goodies? Stolen goods? Maybe a little Sputnik? Or Coke, said Todd. Or Smack, more than likely. Just look at them. I'm looking, said Drenigan. Not that I want to, and not that I care. Maybe they're hoping we do take them in, eh, Toddy? Nice comfy cells on a winter's night. Could be, said Todd. Of course, a cell's not so comfy if you've fallen down the stairs a few times. No, it isn't. And prison. Oh, prison's a lark, isn't it? Certainly it is, Skip. Drenigan grinned down at us. His teeth were yellow-brown in colour. Are you all following me, then? Not using too many long words? No one answered. Well, we didn't have to, did we? Drenigan's grin melted away like dew in the dawn. Okay, now I've got your attention, here's what we're going to do. I could be persuaded to overlook any little... He snapped his fingers a couple of times. Illegality, Skip, Todd put in. The blue light picked out a wide, sickly grin on his chops. Probably a big word for him. Illegalities, said Drenigan. Myself and Constable Todd here. Let you go on your merry ways while we go ours. It's Christmas after all. But, well, we've got presents to buy, haven't we, Toddy? Todd's silhouette head bobbed. Wives and kiddies, Drenigan went on. Wives and kiddies. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll let it go by in exchange for, say... He pretended to consider. In exchange for everything you make over the next two or three nights. Go on out, panhandle, do all your sneaky little tricks. Just be here tomorrow night and give it all to us. And don't try holding out on us. We might get very cross, mightn't we, Toddy? Very, said Todd. Might lose our grip while we're walking you up the station steps. Several times, rejoined Drenigan. They're a great double act. Shame no one was laughing. 
all our money? Karis was wide-eyed, a mixture of shock and rage. She looked at Tiger and at me, and I could see what she was thinking. They just won't make it. Out on the streets, no money, nowhere to go. You, you can't. They'll... Drenigan pinned her face in his torch, then tutted softly. I don't know, he said softly. I really, really don't know. He extended his hand and beckoned with one finger. Karis recoiled as if from a cobra. Drenigan sighed again. Then suddenly he moved, a lot faster than I'd thought he could have with his bulk. His left hand caught Karis by the collar and yanked her upright. Before she could struggle, kick, or anything, he swung the torch up and down once, slamming her hard in the face. Karis let out a gasped cry of shocked pain. A fine mizzle of blood glittered like jewel dust in the torch beam. She swayed. Drenigan pulled her back up. "'Skipper!' shouted Todd. Drenigan swung the torch back, the light glowing on the ceiling, but Todd's flashed in the archway. I saw both their faces. Karis' left eye was already swollen shut, blood pouring from her nose and a split lower lip. Drenigan's eyes were no longer narrow. The lips had peeled back so they seemed to bulge. His teeth nipped into his own bottom lip. I don't know who he thought he was hitting, Maybe his dad, his mum, his teacher, some perv who'd felt him up, a school bully, a first girlfriend who'd laughed at his tiny prick. I don't know. But it wasn't Karis. But she'd do. He'd love hitting her, but never as much as he'd thought he would. And so he'd always want to throw one more punch, and another, and another. He could go on hitting her till he killed her. And I did nothing. I loved her, but I didn't dare put myself between her and Drenigan. It was like seeing a tidal wave sweep inland. I'd only be running to her so we could be together when we died. But that should have been enough, I thought. So as that long moment stretched out, I started to boost myself up. But then Todd shouted again, Come on, Danny! She no use if she got no face. She could make us a packet. Drenigan's head jerked round, and his forehead glittered despite the cold. Fury and control fought for a second. Then he blew out a long breath and nodded. He looked back round at Karis as though she'd just appeared on the end of his arm and slung her away in disgust. I tried to catch her, but I was off balance. We went down together. Drenigan smirked down at us in control again, but his breathing was still ragged. He prodded Karis with the toe of his boot. Here endeth the lesson, cunt. Understand what I'm saying? Then he turned and walked back to Todd. He glanced back. A flickering demon washed in blue fire. Tomorrow night. Midnight. Be here. And then they were gone. The group settled down to sleep. Well, except for me. I couldn't. I held Karis close to me and stroked her cropped black hair. She looked small and childlike, asleep in the big duffel coat she wore, which made the cuts and bruises Denigan had given her look all the worse. But what really scared me and kept me awake was the memory of the look I'd seen in her eyes just before she'd stood up to Drenigan. The look that had said, You won't make it. It had been there for Tiger, too. Tiger was anorexically thin, a speed freak. Speed keeps you awake to do more, which was good for Tiger as he dreamt of earning enough money to get off the street, and it kills your appetite, which meant he spent less on food. 
But now that was bad, because without food, Tiger had no energy. And the thing about speed is that the more you take, the more of a tolerance your body builds up. It takes more and more to have the same effect. So all the extra cash Tiger was making just got ploughed into keeping him speeding. Skin and bone and famished as he was, he wouldn't stand a chance in this winter. But me. It scared the hell out of me that Karras was putting me in the same category as Tiger. It didn't seem to make sense. But then I remembered my cough, the one that racked me in the mornings and late in the watches of the night. There was a flaw, a weakness, one that the wind would blow through sharp as a knife, open up some secret wound to bleed my life away. Oh, I was sleeping rough tonight and I should see morning. But the hot food, the shelter, that, if I worked hard, I could buy. Those nights could make all the difference between living and dying. Drenigan would kill me if I didn't pay. The winter would kill me if I did. And all I could do was lie there and stroke Karis' hair. Maybe I could leave town, save enough for a coach fare to somewhere else. But what would that do? Abandon Karis and the others to take the shit from Drenigan? And Karis would never do that. She wouldn't come with me. Perhaps I could walk away from the others, but not her. So what the hell was I going to do? And that was when I heard it. The rattling of clinker under booted feet. And looking around, I saw movement in the dim light, moving towards the mouth of the rail arch. Vecaray. Vecaray and his blanket. I finished my pint and shivered, partly at the memory of that winter and partly because a cloud had crossed the sun and thrown its shadow down. I got up and began to walk. I told myself I didn't have any idea where I was going, but I did. I knew exactly where. The river bank. The one I'd walked along that morning under the Prince's Bridge on my way to work. Under that bridge, there's a little space. A gap between the bridge and the concrete piling that holds it up. An iron grill is supposed to cut it off from the towpath, but you can always climb over. And if you do, there's a nice little niche where you can spend the night. And hanging out through the bars of the grill had been a blanket. A soft ash grey with the richest, reddest edging you ever saw. Thackeray's blanket. Watching Vecaray, I wondered where he was going. It made no sense. He had other bodies round him to share warmth with. Why scuttle off? I don't know why I've followed him even now. He wasn't a friend. An acquaintance, yes. I didn't think he'd welcome me intruding. But Vecaray was an enigma. Always had been. And maybe since I was living on borrowed time as far as I could see... I wanted to solve that puzzle before I died. At the mouth of the rail arch he turned left, slipped out of sight. I counted to ten, then gently disengaged myself from Karis to follow. She stirred, moaned lightly. I froze. Tuli snored. Tiger lay still in sleep. I listened, shivering at the bite of the cold, fought down a fit of coughing. Nothing. 
Then I padded forwards, towards the cinder path outside the rail arch. I pressed myself flat against the wall, edged close to the corner, and peeped round it. Nothing. The park was dark and empty. I padded out onto the cinder path. My feet crunched and gritted in the dirt. I moved forward, peering into the other arches as I went. There wasn't much light, some from the moon, some from distant street lamps, but I could just about see by it. Then from the arch up ahead, I heard Vecaray. He was letting out low moans that could have been pain or ecstasy. Then they peeked into low muffled cries that were nowhere near as ambiguous. God knew what was happening to him. He wasn't a friend, but I couldn't leave anyone like that. So, hoping I wasn't about to fall foul of some crazed thug pounding Vecaray to a pulp, or worse, Drenigan and Todd, I went forward, breaking into a run as Vecaray's cries grew louder, and, as I reached the rail arch they were coming from, faded away. I squinted into the gloom. Vecaray? I called. No answer, but my voice was muffled. If he was in a bad way, he might not hear me. I called again. Vecaray! You all right? Still no answer. What if he was lying semi-conscious, unable to respond? I took a couple of steps forward and called again. This time I was answered, but it wasn't Vecaray. It wasn't even human. It was a low, rasping hiss and a sort of rattling noise that might have been intended as a chuckle. It was coming from a few feet away. I turned, squinting. There was no way there could be a man there, but there was something. An old blanket, grey with red edging. Vecaray's blanket lay empty and crumpled on the floor. What the hell could have happened that would have made him abandon it? I stepped towards it, and the blanket moved, wriggled away from me over the floor. Something humped and fidgety moved underneath. A rat, I thought. There's a rat under there. Except that it was growing, that hump in the blanket, spreading, lifting more of the blanket off the floor as if raising a tent, Something pushed forwards to the edge of the blanket nearest me and lifted up. It rose up, propped by something I couldn't see and didn't want to. Dark, wet things fumbled at the edging, drawing it around the hunched thing, pulling it closed except for some loose cloth at the top, which opened out and filled like shadows, like a hood. Just like the way Vecaray wore the blanket of a night. Except that it couldn't be Vecaray, it was too small. At least a foot of blanket puddled loosely on the ground around it. The empty hood swivelled until it directly faced me. In it, I saw two points of red light burn like the embers of a dying fire. The blanket rustled, began to open, and I glimpsed something reaching out of it. That was when I turned and ran. I ran, feet crunching in the cinder, all the way back to the rail arch where the others were sleeping, dived under my own blanket, wriggling close to Karis' comforting warmth, and lay there wide awake till the break of day, all the time waiting for the hunched thing wrapped in Vecaray's blanket to creep around the edge of the rail arch, with its eyes burning red. I felt, not surprisingly, like death warmed up the next morning. I shrugged off Karis' concern, wished her luck as we went our separate ways, and followed Vecaray. I caught up with him along the river bank, just past the prince's bridge on the stretch of ground, where he would, 
five years later, die. I called out to him, and he turned. He didn't look pleased to see me, but he didn't look angry either. What can I do for you? he asked. Last night, I said. What of it? I heard you groaning, I said. I went to see if you're okay. There was a slight look of unease, but he drowned it quickly in the shifting sand of his face. Well, he said, I was, wasn't I? I don't know, I said. You weren't there. But something else was, I pointed to the blanket, under that. Vecaray looked at me, the beginnings of a supercilious smile and a smooth answer on his lips, and then both faded away. Maybe he realised he couldn't bullshit me on this one, because I didn't fear him. I was a dead man walking, remember? Or more likely a weariness caught up with him. Weariness at keeping secrets, at lying, at sustaining himself in this bleak life. All of a sudden he looked old. He was never a spring chicken that I knew of, but at that moment he looked as though a century had fallen on him. So when he spoke one word into the soft wind which carried it away, I didn't need to ask what it was. I picked it from the movement of his lips, and I understood what he meant. Tired. He turned and gazed at the slaty grey river, writhing under its crust of ice. I'm tired, he said more clearly. I need a smoke. He sat himself down on the bank, old bones creaking, and dug out an old tin, which he opened to reveal half a dozen cigarettes carefully hoarded. Want one? What the hell, I thought. Sure. He lit them with an old brass zippo that looked as though it had only just made it back from one of the thousand bomber raids on Berlin and blew a long plume of mingled breath and smoke into the cold morning air. So, he said, last night. Last night, I agreed. Where were you, Vicaray? Where did you go? Where did I go? He chuckled. <laughs> to hell and back. For a moment I thought he was bullshitting, but I decided to wait and hear him out. No one has so much time as a dead man, nor so little. Vecaray sat and smoked, then after a while he turned. How do you deal with a life that's become intolerable? Hmm? How do you think? Two ways, I said after a moment. You change it, or you find something that makes it tolerable. Vecaray nodded slowly. Good answer, he said. And what might make it tolerable? All sorts, I said. Booze, maybe. Smack. Or oh, God, if that's your thing. Vecaray chuckled. <laughs> if that's your thing, he echoed. Another good answer. Of course, the first option is best, because if you render the intolerable tolerable, then you accept it, don't you? You remain trapped in misery, like myself. What's this to do with last night, I asked. Vecaray tapped the blanket, which protruded from his pocket. The answer's in here, he said. You mentioned God. Do you believe in God? Not really, no. I do, Vecaray said simply, and for a very simple reason that has nothing to do with faith. If there is a devil, then there must be a god after all, and the devil is here. Hell is here. <laughs>
he tapped the blanket again. I didn't think, as I might have, Vecaray's mad. I'd seen the hunched thing the night before. After that, I could take a leaf out of the Red Queen's book and believe two impossible things before breakfast. Don't ask me how it was done, said Vecaray, but, as Othello said, there's magic in the web of it. By night, when I lay down to sleep in it, I spend a few minutes of time somewhere else. Where? Hell, of course, smiled Vicaray. And in exchange there is an inhabitant of hell who spends a short time free. We exchange places. I suffer the torments of the damned for a few minutes. Two or three. Three minutes that seem longer, of course, because it is the condition of hell that those within it are without hope. But end it does, and then I sleep soundly and face the new day with joy in my heart. Why? I demanded. Why would you let that be done to you? Why does the denizen of hell stay within the blanket when it could escape and abandon me forever? Because there are others. It's never the same one twice. These openings into our world are rare. If misused, the blanket would be destroyed, and hell's legions would hound the betrayer, because they would sooner die again, oblivion for ever, than deprive themselves of one outlet such as this, because to be freed from hell for even an instant, to escape its torments and see this world once more, even in the place of the lowest beggar, is bliss unimaginable and to spend even a minute in hell renders even the worst sufferings here on earth tolerable, I said at last. Yes, he agreed, tolerable. Have you never wondered why I'm still like this after all these years? I'm educated. I could fight my way back into the real world. Others with far less advantage than I have done so. But it's the curse of this odd blessing. Even this life is a joy compared to that terrible hour of the night. What else is an irrelevance? This life is tolerable, and that is enough. He finished his cigarette and flicked it into the water. Anyway, he said, we've spoken long enough. We must earn money, must we not, for our dear friend Sergeant Drenigan. He stood and stretched. Caris, he said. What about her? I tensed, feeling a thrill of hostility pass through me. Vecaray saw it and chuckled. <laughs> she loves you, you know, was all he said. And then he walked on down the path, leaving me sitting there, finishing my smoke. And he was right. She did. The day passed quickly enough, and before I knew it, we were back at the rail arch, huddled round our little fire, watching toolboxes battered old Timex work its way round to twelve o'clock. Drenigan and Todd showed up bang on time, and the big man glowered down at my small takings contemptuously. I saw him heft the torch menacingly, till Todd said, For Christ's sakes, Danny, what do you expect, an ugly little shit like that? Better than nothing. Drenigan let me off with a kick to my thigh muscle that deadened my leg, then moved in, leering at Caris as she gave him about thirty quid in loose change. As an afterthought, he muttered something about a fire hazard, 
and stamped our fire down into dull embers and drifting ash that stung our eyes before he and Todd went their way. We sat and shivered. Vekeray got up and drifted off. Thule huddled up and went to sleep. Then Karis was beside me, pushing a crumpled wad of notes into my hand. Here. What's this, I said. A little something I put aside for a rainy day, she said. The day's here now. Take Tiger, get him to a hostel. Both of you get in there for the night. That money should pay for a couple of nights at least. Just don't let Drenigan see it. What about you? I have enough to take care of myself. I'll see you later. I'll take care of Thule and Vekeray. Thule was built like a tank, and Vekeray... They don't need your help. She cocked her head. She had a tiny but determined chin. They're still getting it. Now go on. I kissed her one last time, then woke up Tiger and dragged him out. The hostel was warm. There was soup. They even had a doctor look me over. He gave me some pills, a bottle of them that he said would clear up the lung infection I had, the one that otherwise would have proven fatal. One night made all the difference. It saved my life. I slept, smiling. It would be some time before I smiled again. Toolbox met us outside the hostel the next morning and his face was chalky white under the ironmongery. You'd better come quick, he said, then clamped his big paw on my arm and started hurrying me along. He had to reach back and grab Tiger too. Without his speed, he was dawdling. What, I said, what's happened? But I think I was already starting to work it out by who wasn't there. Another minute and I wouldn't have needed Tooley at all. He stopped running, let Tiger go, gripped both my arms. It's bad, he said. I, I don't know how to tell you, it's... It's Karis. Karis had given all her rainy day money to us. Enough to make sure we'd make it through that winter night. The sickly, the old, the drug-addicted and despairing. There was none left for herself. But she was young and she was strong. Perhaps the strongest of us all. She'd gone and found some little nook of brick and stone. Wrapping up warm and tight as she could thinking that and her strength would be enough. It wasn't. That bitter night sucked the heat from her while she slept and turned her common slumber into the longest and darkest one of all. Poor Karis. Never thinking of herself while there were others to care for. That's a rarity, on the street or off it, in a way, I think it was the source of that strength of hers. But in the end, it killed her too. I was numb. Couldn't even begin to weep. It didn't seem real or possible. Tooley shook me hard. Come on, he said. I need your help. It's Vekeray. He's gone apeshit. As we hurried along, I thought, Dranigan. And for the first time, I wanted, really wanted, to kill a man. We found Vekeray under another rail arch, hunched up and sobbing. His hands were clasped over his bowed head. They were bloody from punching the wall. I went to him, touched his arm. He flailed at me, shrieking. I hung back, then lunged forward, grabbed him, shook him quiet. 
He stared at me, his wet eyes streaming tears I would never have believed them to possess. A moment later, I realized that mine were now doing just the same. I squeezed his bony shoulders. I know, mate, I simply said. I know. Vecarate fumbled in a pocket, pulled out a fistful of notes. She left these for me. I didn't need them. I would never have asked. I know. Where he'd been last night, it was plenty hot enough. Why? Why did she... His face crumpled. He shook with sobs. Then his fists drove upwards. His head flung back and he screamed, Drenigan! Then he slumped, growing quiet. Drenigan, he said again. He as good as murdered her. I nodded. And he'll never be punished for it. Our word against his and Todd's. I nodded again. But there are other ways, said Vecaray. We can make them pay. And pay. And pay. His clenched hand lifted the blanket. I nodded one last time. Vecaray smiled, a terrible, flinty smile. Then grief crumpled his face and we were both weeping again. We still weren't friends exactly, but we were closer through our shared grief. Karis had got closer, though, to both of us, closer to me than anyone will ever again. I still couldn't believe that she was dead, and even now sometimes I still can't. Can't believe she's gone. So we sat and waited that night. We had a little money in our pockets, but nowhere near enough to please Drenigan and Todd. But ask us if we cared. The fire flickered and we sat in a rough semicircle, Vecaray directly before the fire, facing out towards where Drenigan and Todd would appear. The blanket lay in a shapeless huddle in his lap. Sure enough, just before midnight we heard the police rover's tyres crunching in the grit, followed by footsteps doing the same. Torches flared into the gloom. Drenigan's bulk and Todd's scrawniness stood behind them. Drenigan wandered forwards. "'We're one short,' he said. "'Karis is dead.' My voice was cold, brittle, empty of emotion, like a frozen gale swept wasteland. "'Last night she froze.' Oh, "'Too bad,' said Drenigan. "'Cute little arse. Yeah, laughed Todd. You must be confusing us with someone who gives a fuck. Any second thoughts I had about what we were planning ended in that moment. The bastards deserved whatever they got. Now, said Drinigan, what have you got for us? Oh, we've got something for you, all right, said Vicaray. But you're not going to like it. Oh, no, Drinigan asked, coming closer. And what's that, then? "'Death,' said Vecaray, and threw the blanket into the fire. "'It flapped out straight, descending onto the flames and covering them completely. "'Total dark, except for the torches, filled the rail arch. "'A laugh escaped Drenigan, briefly. "'Then he lunged forwards, reaching out for Vecaray, left-handed. "'But his hand never got there, "'because right then Vecaray's blanket flung itself off the fire straight at him,' making a noise like nothing I'd heard before. 
It was a shriek so high-pitched it was like screwdrivers plunging into your eardrums, a rumble so low you felt your guts writhe as though they would burst out of your stomach. It was explosions and earthquakes. It was one voice and many screaming in torment, in joy, in rage, in hate. I couldn't see the face, if it had one, of the thing under the blanket, but Drenigan did, and he screamed before it even touched him, higher and more hysterical than I would have believed him capable of. Then the tiny hunched figure reached him, and two dark wet things shot out from under the blanket. They looked like hands, but greenish-black in colour, webbed and clawed, glistening as though raw, as though freshly burned. They caught Drenigan's outstretched hand at the wrist and yanked, slamming him down flat against the floor. Then it put its whole body into a huge swinging heave, swinging Drenigan up over its head to smash him down onto the hard earth. I heard his bones shattering with a noise like a sackful of eggs, and my heart soared in savage joy. The thing under the blanket, still wrapped in it like a monk in his robe, jumped and capered for a moment, then vaulting Drenigan's quivering body towards Todd. Todd had been coming forwards into the rail arch, but when the beam of his torch fell on the thing that had brought Drenigan down, he screamed even louder than the big man had and turned to run. But the hunched thing was on him like a dog, gripping his ankles and yanking his feet out from under him. Todd sprawled flat with a thud, his nose bursting as his face punched into the ground, lips tearing and shredding into mince as it ran backwards and his face ploughed up a furrow in the clinker. It hauled him back into the dark, then yanked him up onto his knees by the hair, gripped his shoulders and twirled him round to face the three of us, pretty as a ballerina. In all truth, Todd looked dead already then. His lips were gone and his smashed nose hung by a gristle thread. His eyelids had peeled away. His face was little more than a grimacing skull. The hunched thing scuttled close. The blanket fell loosely, baggily around it in all the right places, so all we could see were the claws and that, I can tell you, suited me just fine. Its claws swiped fast, so fast that I wondered if I'd really seen it till Todd's guts came sliding out of him raw and greasy. He whooped and wailed, and didn't die. Then I noticed that our fire had changed. It wasn't a heap of burning wood and refuse anymore. There was a fire there, but it was in a perfect circle, like an open manhole. And like a manhole, the flames seemed to be rushing up from below, hot and cold all at once, bright and searing. I dared to lean forward and looked down, and instead of a fire I saw a long plunging shaft hewn out of the living rock and leading far down beyond sight. Flames rushed and screamed up it, like trapped things yearning to be free again. The scream sounded eerily human, like men and women being tortured and tortured and tortured without hope of it ever ending. The hunched thing flicked Todd's dangling guts so they hung into the flames. He moaned and wailed as they began to sizzle, a smell like something cooking filling the rail arch. Mom! Todd shrieked or tried to. I managed to work out what he was saying, but I won't even try to show how it sounded, coming through his lipless, mangled mouth. Oh, sweet baby Jesus! Mom! Mom! His guts kept sliding out through his fumbling hands and down into that long, ever-burning chute, till the hunched thing tired of his terror and anguish, 
caught him by the shoulder and flung him forwards, pitching him screaming down that long, hot shaft to hell. All that was left of Todd were his fading screams, and those of the flames, and soon enough they seemed one and the same. The hunched thing scuttled over to Drenigan. Somehow he still lived. It knocked him over onto his back. He couldn't scream any more. All he could do was blubber and sob into that face we were all glad we couldn't see. The hunched thing plunged its hand into Drenigan's stomach and thrust it in. I won't say it went into the elbow or the shoulder, because I couldn't say for sure if it had an elbow or a shoulder. All I know is that Drenigan found he did have a scream or two left in him, and started giving vent to them when the hunch thing pulled its hand free, clutching his still beating heart. And Drenigan wouldn't die, or couldn't, I suspect, even when it stuffed his heart inside the hood, presumably into its mercifully unseen mouth. It scuttled down and grasped his ankles, then crouched. Then it sprang and launched itself in a backwards run, dragging Drenigan with it towards the fire. Drenigan struggled, and still he wouldn't die. Still he screamed, Vakaray! Vakaray! For pity's sake! He screamed, Vakaray! Vakaray! The hunched thing reached the lip of the shaft, crouched, and leapt backwards. Vakaray! And down it plunged, dragging Drenigan after it. The blanket unfolded from it as it vanished, lay flat over the fire, and Drenigan was sucked under it like spaghetti into a kid's mouth. A last piercing scream that raised the hairs and bumps on my skin like nails on a blackboard, and then he was gone. Forever. His screams, Todd's, those of the flames, dimmed and died. Flickering, weary orange light seeped out from under the blanket, and Vecaray snatched it away. The little fire we'd made, the one we had each night, burned. Wood and bits of rubbish. No Drenigan, no Todd, no shoot into hell. Nothing. We looked down into it for a long time. Then I spat into the flames. They hissed. And we all lay down and went to sleep. I walked along the river bank again, where Vecaray had explained the blanket to me, where he died. Tiger had died, the next winter without Karras to protect him, too much speed, not enough food, rest in peace. Not long after that I had that lucky break I told you about. That was the last I saw of Thule and Vecaray. I don't know what became of Toolbox. He vanished back into the other world of cracks and gaps, and in spite of all good intentions, I never saw him again. Vecaray I learned about this morning when I saw his blanket lying lonely in the niche under the bridge, the blanket he never let leave his side, and I knew he must be dead. They buried Karis in a poor little grave in the public cemetery. When I started working, I saved up until I could buy her a headstone. Best black marble. I go there often with fresh flowers. I don't know what I was planning to do with the blanket. Burn it, maybe. Destroy it. I'll never know. I only knew it had plans of its own. The police should have taken it. Until they knew how Vecaray had died, they'd have treated it as a suspicious death. But it hadn't wanted to be found to end up in an incinerator somewhere. 
I reached Prince's Bridge, walked under it, and approached the niche. It was empty. Of course. Nothing there, and especially not a blanket. I wondered if someone else had found it, or if, more likely, the blanket had gone off to find them, and who they were and what they were doing. I didn't know then, as I walked away along the river bank in the warm August sunlight, and I don't know now. But I do know that even if it was in me before to cross up a beggar, it isn't in me now. And if you've any sense, neither will you. Especially not if the beggar has a blanket. And especially not if the blanket's a soft grey of spent wood ash or charcoal and edged in the richest, most vivid red you ever saw. That was Simon Bestwick's Vacquerie Blanket, as read by Graham Dunlop. Graham is a software solutions architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the co-editor of the fantasy podcast Podcastle, and used to host the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. You can find him on Google+, and he occasionally tweets as at Kibitzer on Twitter. Thank you, Graham. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found this podcast. Our show is produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.